It seems strange somehow to not be saying, join me in Matthew as we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Strange and sad for me, too. And to instead ask you to open your Bibles and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about the qualifications, roles, and responsibilities. We've got, we got a slide up there. For, there it is. There's a church title, the sermon title. About the qualifications, roles, and responsibilities of the two offices to which scriptures give the responsibility for church governance. That is deacon and pastor or elder or overseer. All three of those terms are interchangeable, synonymous in, in the New Testament. And so just for the sake of clarity and simplicity from this term that we're most familiar with, and that is pastor. I want to acknowledge the contributions of Benjamin Merkel, Bruce Powers, and Larry Nelson and others as I formulated this message and leaned upon their expertise. Now, now I want to use the term church governance. I want you to understand that I'm referring to the organizational, the administrative structure of the church. And let me just say, it matters. Before you roll your eyes at me, it is important. But it is not the most important issue. There are a number of other issues that are more important to the church. The deity of Christ, right? The salvation by grace through faith alone. The inspiration, infallibility, and sufficiency of Scripture. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. The certain return and triumphant return of Christ. Or just a few examples of issues that are more crucial to the church and to the Christian faith. And, and we should also acknowledge as we begin this task that although there are many aspects of church governance that are clearly delineated in the Bible, the teaching role of pastors as opposed to the servant role of deacons, there, there are other aspects that are not as clearly defined. And that means we ought to approach any discussion of church governance with humility, with a teachable spirit, understanding that, that because there are areas that are not clearly defined in Scripture, that we need to be flexible and at the same time acknowledge that our personal preferences are not on a par with Scripture when it comes to ideas about church governance. Now we need to also say that just because a specific topic such as church governance may not be the most important issue, most important topic, that does not mean that it is totally unimportant. In fact, I suggest to you that the form of church government a local church employs is extremely relevant to the life and health of that church. And when we talk about how the local church is to be governed, clearly it's incumbent and beneficial that the church determines as best it can and follows as best it can, as closely as she can, the wisdom of God as recorded in Scripture with regard to church governance. Church family, we are the body of Christ. We are composed of blood-bought believers, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And it's for that reason, the importance of this task, of, of those who are called to lead the church, to minister to the church under God's guidance, we, we can't overstate that. Church governance is, an ex governance is an extremely important issue when it comes to the life and health of the local church. Now, of course, understanding and undergirding everything 
else must be the understanding that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Paul in Colossians 1.18 states that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So there's only one true leader of the church. Say it with me. Jesus Christ. He's the chief shepherd. All other shepherds or pastors are under shepherds, meaning they, they, we shepherd God's flock under the authority and direction of Christ and His Holy Word. So it's right then to say that the authority of any leader, any pastor in a church is always a derived authority. They don't bring it, that to the table themselves. Jesus administrates his, his church by means of the Word and His Spirit, and every leader in the church is subject to those. All that by way of introduction. So let's take a look now at the qualifications, roles, and responsibilities of the office of deacon. And, and uh, next week and probably two weeks after that, uh, we're going to take a similar look at the office of pastor. This morning, as you probably wondered with all the chairs up here, we're going to set aside time to affirm the calling of God upon the lives of four of our brothers in Christ to the office of, of deacon. Dave Garber, Steve Crowder, Jason Jarrett, and Bryce Birchfield. Now we're going to read the text. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their, life, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, not, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their households well, their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we're thankful that your word gives us clear guidance in so many areas. And for the office of deacon, Father, you've clearly laid out uh, your guidelines. Help us to be faithful to those, to understand them when we leave this place today. And may this church operate under the scriptural guidelines in all areas of governance going forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I guess the first time that I paid any attention uh, to deacons, and I don't know what this says about me or about them, but the first time I noticed deacons was on the front steps of the Church of First Baptist of Columbiana smoking a cigarette between Sunday school and worship. That's the day. That was the time. You've got to remember what time we're talking about. In some of the churches I've either attended or pastored or, or knew about from family or friends, the deacons were seen or saw themselves as a ruling body, as a sort of board of, of directors who oversaw everything in a dictatorial manner, everything that went on in the church, even to the hiring and firing of the pastor, what they said went. But I want you to know, most of the deacons I have served alongside, the vast majority of the deacons I have served alongside, they have been good and godly men, spiritual, servant-hearted leaders who loved the Lord and loved His church. Now, there are churches where the title uh, deacon has been 
something that men wanted to attain to because it gave them a certain amount of cachet in the church and maybe even beyond the walls into the community. In others, the role of deacon has not been clearly defined. There are churches where folks don't even know who the deacons are. And others where the biblical guidelines don't seem to, to play much of a role in who becomes a deacon. Other churches, there are no deacons at all. The office is simply ignored. Again, let me be clear. By far, most of the men I've personally known who served as deacons have been wonderful, godly, Christ-honoring men, men whom I have admired and have meant a great deal to me, still mean a great deal to me. We're all familiar with the word deacon. It's a marvelous term. And the men who are called and who serve well are special men whom the church ought to respect. This morning, if I could, I, I would just erase from your memory everything that doesn't belong there when it comes to the term deacon and redefine it so you'll understand what the Bible means when it talks about the responsibilities of a deacon and how we're to move forward as a church family with regard to the diaconate. This term deacon is a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos. You know this. It's a Greek word that's found 29 times in the New Testament, usually translated minister or servant. We see it three times in the New Testament, translated as deacon. You see the references up there, Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 12. And here, Paul gives us nine qualifications in these verses we read earlier that apply to deacons. They're in that text we just read, and we're just going to dive right in this morning. The first requirement Paul identifies for deacons is that they must be dignified. It's a term that means someone who's honorable, someone who is revered, esteemed, respected, who's worthy. We find it in only four places in the New Testament, Philippians 4.8, 1 Timothy 3.8 and 11, and Titus 2.2. And it's true that the duties of deacons are service-oriented, okay? Not leadership-oriented necessarily, but that doesn't mean that the leadership of a deacon is not important. In fact, the work, again, the work of, de of deacons is, is, is vital to the life and health of the church. And, and as such, it requires a man that is well thought of in the church. So dignified. And then, verse 8, not double-tongued. Paul tells us that deacons are not to be double-tongued. That word, dialogos, means something said twice. And this is the only place in the New Testament where we find this word. So what do we think about people that are double-tongued? People are double-tongued for one thing, or people who say something to a person over here and then say something quite different to another person over here. Or they say something that could be easily misconstrued or an attempt to try to conceal or manipulate their agenda. We might call them two-faced, might call them devious if we're trying to be kind, which we should be, We'd merely call them insincere. Bottom line, those who are double-tongued are not trustworthy in their speech. And that does something. It compromises their credibility. Deacons, on the other hand, are to be those who are, are careful with their speech. They avoid saying what they should not say. They try to say what they should say at all times. They want to be truthful at all times in what they say. And they want to be saying everything that they say in love. And then also in verse 8, we see not addicted to much wine. Just simply, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Just let me say, a man is disqualified for the office of deacon is he, if he is addicted to wine or strong drink because 
It shows a lack of self-control and discipline, making that man unworthy to serve in the office of deacon. Also in verse 8, not greedy for dishonest gain. So if a person's a lover of money, that motivates him in his life. He's not qualified to be a deacon. Especially since deacons often handle financial matters or at least have some role in, in the management of finances in the local church. And also in verse 9, holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So when Paul uses this phrase here, the mystery of the faith, he's talking about nothing more or less than the gospel. So we see here that, that deacons are to be men who do not waver when it comes to believing the gospel, but there's more to it than that. It's more than about just believing the gospel. It's to be qualified to serve as a deacon, a man must believe the gospel with a clear conscience, meaning he must consistently live out what it is that he says he believes without compromise, because if he doesn't, he's going to be convicted and condemned by his own conscience. So we're talking about there really a marriage between belief and behavior. And then tested and blameless in verse 10. Paul writes that deacons must be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Blameless is being this broad term that covers the overall character of a person. When, with regard to the exact type of testing that Paul's talking about here, we can't be sure. But, but church tradition plays a role here. 2,000 years of church history don't mean nothing, okay? Church tradition has taken this to mean, at a minimum, that the candidate's personal background and reputation and theological positions should be assessed, that his moral and spiritual and doctrinal maturity ought to be examined, and that how well he relates to, to other church members, as well as his history of service in the church, ought to be evaluated. That's been done with these men. And in verse 11, godly wife. We can get into a little bit of controversy here. There are those who suggest that here in verse 11, Paul's referring to women who serve in the role of deacon. Others say that he's talking about the wives of potential deacons, which I believe, and without going into the grammar and context of this verse, is the correct interpretation. But while I'm here, let me say this about that. I've known in every church I've pastored a good many godly, God-fearing, servant-hearted women who have performed many of the duties of the office of deacon, some of them for years and years, and never been called a deacon. In fact, I go so far as to say I'm not sure where many of our churches would be or if they would be at all without the ministry of faithful women doing what deacons are called to do. Again, I believe this verse is referring to the wives of deacons and their qualifications. And according to Paul here, deacons' wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So like a husband, just like her husband, a deacon's wife is to be dignified, to be well thought of, to be revered even in the community of faith. She shouldn't be given to malicious talk about others, not, not to gossip, right? Not one who spreads gossip. Uh, a deacon's wife ought to be sober-minded and temperate, meaning her judgment is sound, and she avoids getting entangled in things that would affect her, her judgment. And then she must be faithful in all things. And what Paul is referring to here is that a deacon's wife ought to be steadfast 
and unwavering in her walk, in her speech, in her service, in her love, in her devotion to Christ and to His church. Let me just say this about the wife of a deacon, and we'll leave this. A deacon's ministry in his church will never rise above the character and commitment of his wife. And then verse 12, husband of one wife. Again, we could get into some controversy here. The best interpretation of this difficult phrase to understand is it's referring to the faithfulness of a husband toward his wife. Literally in Greek, the phrase is one woman man. That is, there must be no other woman to whom this deacon relates in an, an intimate way, either emotionally or physically. I do not believe that Paul means to say here, only married one time, as in never divorced. I do believe that circumstances matter. Say, for example, a young man who is lost, he's an unbeliever, gets married fresh out of high school, it doesn't work out, they get divorced, he turns his life around, accepts Christ, serves faithfully in the church, is married to a godly woman. There's an example right there. Circumstances matter. Having said that, the appointment of a man who has been divorced to the office of deacon ought to be rare. Circumstances matter, and it ought to be rare. And then it says in verse 12, manage children and household well. A deacon must be the spiritual leader of his wife and children. They're the, they are a reflection of the dedication and the commitment that deacon has to raising up his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's not to say that deacon's children ought to be perfect. Sometimes there's no worse children in the whole church behaving children than the deacon's wives and the, the deacon's children than the parents, uh, than the children of the, of the pastors. I didn't want to say that, so I had trouble getting it out. <laughs> but it's true. So not perfect, but not given to rebellion against the, a Christ. Not given to rebellion against the church. So you notice that there's some overlap here in the qualifications of deacons and pastors. And let me just say this. In general, if there is a moral qualification that's listed for pastors but does not listed for deacons, that qualification still applies to deacons and vice versa. For example, a deacon should not be double-tongued, right? We looked at that one earlier in verse 8. Paul doesn't explicitly say this about pastors, but he does say they're to be what? Above reproach. So that certainly covers their speech. Okay, let's talk for a bit about the potential duties of deacons. And we can start out by talking about the responsibilities that do not fall to deacons. Responsibilities like teaching, church discipline, and leading the church or ruling the church. Those are roles and tasks for which pastors are responsible. The scriptures don't give us a list of one through five of items that fall to the deacons, but if we look at Acts 6, we see a, a pattern that develops there between the apostles and the first deacons who were chosen to serve in the church. So then it seems best to see the deacons as servant leaders who do whatever is necessary to allow the pastors to accomplish their God-given call of shepherding and leading and teaching in the church. Just like the apostles 
delegated administrative responsibilities to those first deacons in the early church. So the pastors are to delegate responsibilities to the deacons so that the pastors can focus their efforts in other areas. One writer puts it like this. In the servant role, deacons take care of those mundane and temporal matters of church life so that elders are free to concentrate upon spiritual matters. Deacons provide much-needed wisdom and energy to the ample physical needs in the church, often using such provision as opportunities to minister as well to the spiritual needs of others. So without a clear and detailed accounting of every specific role and responsibility of deacons in Scripture, what we've seen over time, and again 2,000 years of church history, means something is that local churches have defined the tasks of deacons specific to the needs of that local church. But if we look at 1 Timothy 3, we can make some inferences, okay? We can find some indications of those roles. Wayne Grudem offers this possibility. Deacons seem to have had some responsibility in caring for the finances of the church since they had to be people who were not greedy for gain. That makes sense. And then it's not a stretch to extrapolate from verse 12 where Scripture tells us that deacons must be able to manage their household well, that the original deacons, those first deacons, had some administrative responsibilities, some management responsibilities in other areas of ministry in the church. Meeting the practical and, and everyday needs of, of those in the church surely is a role that we see in Acts uh, chapter 6. We looked at that earlier and we're going to read it later. And then verse 11, where Paul's talking about the wives of deacons, it's not far-fetched to say that those wives were involved in some house-to-house visitation, some counseling, and certainly their husbands might have gone along on those visits. So how does that all translate, or we can extrapolate from first century deacon ministry to determining the role of ministries in our day? I suggest that we could say that deacons would be responsible for oversight, or for managing in any area that does not involve teaching or leading the church. Now hear me carefully here, which is not to say that individual deacons cannot be gifted and called to teach. See Stephen, remember his sermon, right? Got him killed. I'd say he's a preacher-teacher, wouldn't you? Also a deacon. Or that individual deacons are not capable of providing leadership within the church. I, I am saying that Scripture does not assign those responsibilities to the office of deacon. So with regard to our church, one specific area might be buildings and grounds. Deacons be, could be responsible for the basic management of the church properties, for maintenance, oversight, for maintenance, and repairs. not saying they need to do it. I'm saying they need to be in charge of seeing that it gets done. That could also include preparing our worship services preparing our facility for, for worship services. Very closely akin to that, deacons might be involved in or provide oversight in custodial matters within the church, running the, the sound system, uh, facility usage, who, who gets to use the facility when. So buildings and grounds. And then benevolence. Again, we see that in the very first deacons in Acts chapter 6, the, the apostles assigned to those first deacons the daily distribution of food to the widows. So it's not a stretch to say that, that deacons today should be responsible for ministry to the deacons and to, to widen that out to say they might even be, have oversight and, and manage our reaching out to those who are in need through benevolence. And then finances. 
Of course, there are those who say that when it comes to matters of finance, that pastors ought to provide leadership for the church. They would cite the time when Paul and Barnabas took the offering, money intended for those who were suffering in Jerusalem from the famine, and gave it to the pastors of the church. And traditionally, pastors in the local church have worked through church members that have been nominated by the church body to oversee finances. But it's entirely feasible that we can make a case for deacons having a hand in the routine day-to-day matters with regard to finances, like collecting and counting the offering, like record-keeping, like promoting special love offerings or mission offerings. And then ushers. Deacons can be responsible for distributing bulletins. They can serve as greeters. Man, that is such an important role in the life of our church, helping guests to find classrooms, locate the bathroom facilities, even a seat in the sanctuary. Certainly preparing and serving the Lord's Supper is a task that ought to fall to deacons, and they've been doing that. There are a number of ways that deacons can make themselves Available so that pastors can focus their attention on leading and teaching and shepherding the church. So let's just sum all this up. Deacons and pastors definitely have different roles in the church, but both are important to the life and health of the church. Broadly speaking, pastors are responsible for teaching and shepherding or leading the church. And deacons are responsible for the day-to-day functions of the church that actually keep the church running effectively. They're given the task of taking care of managing matters relating more to the physical needs of the church. I suggest, for example, the deacons, I suggested this, that the deacons might have responsibility over areas such as the buildings and grounds, benevolence, at least participate in the finances of the church, and ushering, and then any other matters that they were related to the practical needs of running the local church. It is imperative that when God calls people to serve in His church, that He looks for those whose heart is right with Him. We need to understand that. 